as socialists, we believe in the self-emancipation of, of workers, and we believe that solutions and uh, fundamental concepts of, of, of the future arise from the process of struggle itself. So where there is large mass participation in struggle, where huge historic battles are being fought, you know, you find clear visions and paths toward, toward the future. And where those battles don't exist, you know, you of course don't have that. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello and welcome to Salvage Live, an event series brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal appearing twice a year with essays, fiction, art and poetry for a desolated left, learning to address not the good old times, but the bad new one. While, ben, while Barnaby observes Passover today, we will be your co-hosts on Savage Live. I'm Annie Olaloku Tariba, and I'm now going to pass you over to Richard Seymour to introduce our incredible guest for the day. Thanks. Uh, Mike Davis, uh, our guest today, is an historian, urban theorist and political activist who, it's fair to say, has been contemplating the apocalypse for decades. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of California and an editor at the New Left Review. Uh, he's written an extraordinary range of books, concrete local histories of Los Angeles, California, and the wider American Southwest, such as City of Quartz, Ecology of Fear, and Magical Urbanism, each bringing a unique geographical and ecological sensibility to bear. Sweeping global studies of issues like car bombs in Buddha's wagon and the creation of an informalized slum-dwelling international proletariat in Planet of Slums, and a range of political ecologies with uh, often an epidemiological focus from late Victorian Holocaust to the monster at our door and the monster enters. I have just scratched the surface here, and I should add that Mike Davis has also written three works of science fiction. So... Um, <clears throat> Mike, there are a number of, we could say, apocalyptic trends in capitalism today, and I guess we're going to try and talk about uh, as many of them as possible. The ecological crisis, incipient fascism, the revival of great power rivalry, most recently the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we are going to have a wide-ranging and open-ended conversation about this uh, with Mike, but um, if we can take audience questions, of course we will, but otherwise we'll follow the discussion wherever it takes us. Uh, Mike, the obvious place to start is with the plague. 
some years ago, back in 2005, you warned of the risk of a global avian flu pandemic in the monster at our door. And you picked up on a number of features of the pandemic that are not really familiar to us. The danger of zoonotic leap from the animal reservoir, the rapid evolution of the virus, the virulence of poverty, so many more things. I suppose the first question from your point of view is, were there any surprises in what took place in 2020? Or was this all entirely predictable? Well, it wasn't just simply predictable. It was foreseen. Uh, you know, there were a large number of warnings about the possibility, uh, indeed the inevitability of a new pandemic. Uh, most of them initially concerned, of course, the emergence of avian flus, uh, but also in the year, year and a half before uh the Chinese announced the existence of uh, a, a new deadly coronavirus strain. Uh, there had been a number of reports warning that there was actually this huge reservoir of coronaviruses. Coronaviruses, of course, had been mostly identified with the common cold or animal diseases and not considered it, you know, a significant global health risk. But you know, the signs of an impending, you know, outbreak were, you know, were very, very clear. And there were also, in, you know, in place a number of mechanisms to deal with an outbreak that was totally uh, uh, ignored or set aside at the beginning of the, the, the pandemic. L let me just uh, point out here that in uh, this book, Monster at a Door, which had been republished with an introduction as if it were a new uh, book, which it isn't. I cite a kind of what, what for me is a paradigmatic example of the forces at work here. And this was a study years ago by a large group of scientists for nature on West Africa and provides background to the emergence both of uh, HIV and of Ebola. And what they showed is that if you look at West Africa, this is the most rapidly urbanizing uh, region of, of, of the world, producing uh, you know, a series of new super cities for the 21st century. But with most of the new population housed in substandard Islam housing, but while this was going on, the traditional source of protein to for urban West Af Africans was uh, fish. And fishing was an artisanal industry that supported millions of people along the, uh, uh, the Gulf of Guinea. But factory fleets from Japan and Europe showed up, and they simply vacuumed up about two-thirds of the available fish protein in the Gulf of Guinea not for food, but as uh, input uh, uh, food stuff for uh, poultry industry, especially internationally. So you're basically transferring protein resources from, you know, urban West Africans to uh, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. At the same time, uh, hardwood forestry, you know, massive transnational forestry uh, was 
in Gabon and Congo and Nigeria to some extent, conducting these very large-scale forest clearances, which, of course, broke down barriers between animal reservoirs of viruses and, and humans, but to cheapen labor in the logging camps. The logging companies hired hunters uh, went out and there's something like 60 different species of reptiles and mammals that end up on the so-called bushmeat uh, menu in the logging camps. So these two things were going on together. And because of the rising cost, for instance, of fish, urban West Africans turned toward bushmeat. And this set up the conditions for a perfect viral storm and the transmission of HIV, Ebola, and unfortunately, uh, who knows how many other uh, novel viruses in the future to urban populations. And similar stories, of course, can be told everywhere, uh, you know, in the world. The conjoint forces of uh, piratical logging and clearance for things like palm oil plantations in Southeast Asia, together with the mining of, of, of the biosphere for food resources, proteins to be uh, transformed uh, into, uh, you know, meat, you know, meat protein for uh, you know, urban urban populations. Nothing could be more out of balance. And of course, finally, you have to add to that climate change. And as climate zones, of course, change across the world, uh, it's pushing vectors, uh, both animals, but especially insect vectors, in all kinds of, 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 of new directions. So the degree of instability that exists between the uh, the between human biologies, you know, in the natural world is unprecedented, at least since the Columbian Exchange and the, uh, you know, the incredible disasters of the 15th and 16th century. I wanted to jump in because I feel like a lot of grad apologies. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so I wanted to jump in. Sorry, we have our regular, my daughter in the background, but I wanted to jump in because I feel like a lot of those threads kind of lead us um, quite neatly onto the next topic that we wanted to talk about. But before we got there, um, I'm really interested in some of the things that I saw. So I spent December and January, most of January in Nigeria. And the dynamics on the ground there are interesting, particularly as it pertains to COVID-19. So a lot of people who are from the upper middle class, sort of wealthier sections of society will know of somebody who has passed away um, from COVID, unfortunately, and is kind of generally hyper-conscious of the risk of COVID-19. And I'm kind of thinking about the way that that contrasts with a widespread belief among the general population that COVID-19 is not a problem in Nigeria, um, particularly because of the kind of appalling state of the healthcare system, diagnosis is near impossible um, for somebody who is a kind of average citizen. So I'm just kind of thinking about the list of um, the list of um, factors 
um, which leads to Africa being, as you kind of have described it, a ticking time bomb and what role that consciousness plays in that, um, particularly in a kind of already apocalyptic state that the, the, the continent seems to um, wallow in. Well, the you know the other thing we need to focus on is um, when you look at the the last uh, intergovernmental panel panel on climate change report, particularly volume two on impacts of, of of climate change. Probably the most frightening part of it is the projected future impacts of of warming on African agriculture. Uh, maize, maize is the major food crop of, of sub-Saharan Africa, largest source of, uh, uh, of uh, calories. And it's projected to decline and collapse by up to 40% by mid-century, a little bit later. Cotton is a major cash crop for uh, you know smaller farmers across West Africa. A similar decline in 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 cotton. So Africa is being assailed from uh, you know from all sides, and in all these instances, whether it's the fishing out of the Gulf of Guinea or the the you know the future crisis in basic subsistence agricultural products, is pushing Africa to greater and greater dependence. On food imports and on the you know the world market, so there's so many reasons why Africa should be the first focus of any discussion. Now, when I talk about apocalypse, I talk about apocalyptic capitalism, simply defined as a stage of capitalism in which global accumulation begins to destroy the conditions for the survival of a large minority of, of poor humanity. And that crisis, of course, has, uh, you know, many, you know, many hotspots, but Africa is the greatest. And I think we all always need to measure the extent of human solidarity by the attention given to uh, the continent that's, you know, eventually the mother of us all. I do want to, um, because obviously uh, you have written um, a piece for the New Letter Review Sidecar, um, and I want to come and uh, address that later on. Uh, and I also want to bring in the subject of uh, the, you know, the wider ecological catastrophe, which you have written about. But just to stick with the pandemic for a moment, um, the I, I want to ask you about the management thereof, because, of course, we did see um, quite uncharacteristically in some ways, ruling classes around the world uh, pull together and perform a series of quite drastic emergency operations, putting capitalism in deep freeze in some senses. Um, but I wonder now we're in the medium to long run. Um, and we're starting to see a shift towards, I guess, what you could call biosecurity surveillance rather than, um, you know, rather for rather than, for example, uh, community managed healthcare solutions or anything like that. 
I wonder what you think is the future of pandemic management, particularly given that most governments acknowledge, including the British government, that the rate at which these threats are occurring has been increasing for the last couple of decades and is only going to increase further as um, you know capital encroaches further into the wildlife reservoir, etc. Um, what do you think is the future uh, of uh, official management of pandemics? And I guess, conversely, what should we be uh, fighting for in that respect? Well, I think the fight, as before, has to concentrate, first of all, on community level, you know, grassroots level public health and basic health uh, provision. Uh, One of the kind of untold parts of the American side of the COVID pandemic has been the uh, financial crisis and collapse of uh, healthcare, basic healthcare uh, across a large part of the country, particularly in rural areas, smaller, older industrial cities, uh, and and so on. all the attention has been focused on big hospitals and interventions against COVID. But the crisis of uh, community-level health care has grown worse, worse than ever, as well as shortages of, of you know, nurses and medical personnel. But I think the bigger story is, is, is this, that what you've seen during the pandemic is an unprecedented international cooperation of scientific research. Okay, this is in a way the, you know, the silver lining based on the public and free sharing of information and research on a scale that's never occurred before. So this has shown that we are on the verge of a revolution in biodesign and genetics. It could be profound to the extent that it's universalized and becomes a, uh, you know, a public good. But standing in front of that, of course, are almost insuperable uh, obstacles, one of which is the pharmaceutical industry, which far from being the, uh, you know, the driving force of medical and pharmaceutical, uh, you know, research, now spends most of its money on advertising products and targets things that uh, uh, are most profitable, like sexual dysfunction amongst males my age, for example, uh, or heart medicines, not the uh, creation of a new generation of antibiotics to deal with the collapse of the antibiotic revolution or new antivirals and, uh, you know, and so on. And the epidemic you know, the pandemic has only underlined this. In this country, of course, billions of dollars were thrown at the pharmaceutical uh, industries to the development of the, the vaccines, despite the fact that the science here, the, the raw research, was overwhelmingly generated in public universities, but then transferred to private title and to enable uh, the extraction of these huge rents that the pharmaceutical industry takes from, uh, you know, the medical sector. We also saw the collapse of all the regional and international agreements about pandemic response, 
and in solidarity. I mean, in the EU, for instance, there is a, uh, a provision by treaty, the event of natural disasters, including uh, pandemics, uh, countries will provide mutual aid to each other. And of course, as you recall, what happened in 2020 was when the Italians started crying out for help from their sister countries, France simply closed the borders, other countries closed the borders, prohibited the export of, uh, of uh, lifeline equipment and, you know, in medicine. The World Health Organization more or less uh, collapsed because it's been entirely hollowed out anyway, and it's dependent on basically the philanthropy of Bill Gates and big governments like the United States and China. One could go on and on, but I mean, it provided an, you know, an X-ray in relief of everything that's wrong with health provision worldwide. And of course, most of all, the gulf between uh, the poor countries of the world and the richer countries of the world. And one of the things I tried to emphasize in the introduction to uh, this new edition of Monster at the Door is simply that there are two immunological humanities. Okay, one humanity has some access to regular healthcare, uh, nutrition, and clean water. The other doesn't. And that other humanity, I mean, again, take the example of uh, of, of West Africa, where malnutrition, I mean, I'm sorry, of Sub-Saharan Africa, where malnutrition is so rife, where tens of millions of people have no access to uh, clean water, you know, or sanitation. So you have these high levels of immune compromise, uh, meaning that the conditions for you know, the spread and the lethality of, of pandemic diseases, you know, are so much, uh, so much higher. I mean, every inequality has been uh, thrown into the starkest and, and, you know, darkest kind of relief. Finally, there's this question, which is of uh, consuming interest that to political scientists and gurus of all kinds, which is the status return in the guise of uh, the subsidies that were uh, provided injections of, of money and investment uh, to prevent a total economic collapse in 2020. But as we know, the majority of this did not go to working class or poor people, or even to small businesses. It went to the very largest uh, companies. And so you have this astonishing thing in the midst of what 2020 seemed to be the worst uh, economic crisis since the Great Depression, for instance, in the United States. You saw an enormous uh, explosion in profits and uh, you know market power by, you know, Amazon and, you know, a handful of other giant corporations raising their owners to even greater, uh, you know, heights above the rest of, 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 of humanity. Um, we still await an analysis that kind of pulls all these threads together and makes the, the logical 
And once you had all this information, I think it would be very obvious what some of the projections and uh, uh, you know trends of the future would uh, you know would be like. None of the basic problems you know have been solved. And I, you know, I can't help but also add that just like the migration crisis, which is driven not just by civil wars, but also by drought and agricultural collapse in areas like the Fertile Crescent, the pandemic and the distribution of of vaccines and uh, provision of aid just is a kind of rehearsal for the genocides of the future, you know, as many more, hundreds, millions and more people uh, are displaced or forced to move or, uh, you know, dealing with collapse of subsistence systems. We now know what the reaction of the, of the wealthy countries, you know, will, will be. More dead children on beaches, more uh, uh, military interventions to safeguard Europe from, uh, you know, the so-called refugee menace and so on. We see the whole direction that's taken uh, uh, politically. You just need to extrapolate that into, uh, you know, the next 20 or 30 years to see how acute the danger is to, you know, the poor minority of humanity. So, uh, Essentially, um, I mean, the, you mentioned the uh, intergovernment, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and uh, its most recent, uh, I think this is the sixth assessment report. And um, in a way, the plague is just a manifestation of the wider ecological catastrophe. And of course, you've written about it in such a way as to bring in the whole metabolic chain from weather systems to the way that interacts with imperialism, uh, class formation, urbanization, the whole pattern of capitalist development, and um, in a way helping us to think about capitalism as a unique kind of metabolic system. Do you think, having looked at um, the science that's being developed um, uh, around climate change and Related catastrophes, obviously, mass extinction, ocean acidification, it's not just climate change. But do you think that, uh, say, a relatively far-sighted wing of the capitalist class might be able to develop something like an enlightened mitigation strategy? Can capitalism itself adapt to this in any way but an extremely brutal one? Uh, it sounds like the answer is the latter. It sounds like it's no, basically. No, absolutely not. I mean... I, I think it's almost irrefutable uh, that we're headed toward um, increases of, of, of temperature more around three and a half degrees centigrade over the next 70 years. Uh, the, you know, this whole charade that's been going on for years of being able to keep global warming between, you know, below 1.4 degrees uh, Celsius or two degrees Celsius uh, is that it's a you know it's a charade covering the tracks of of, uh, of, of the governments no I mean I part of my definition of apocalyptic capitalism would be simply that it's impossible to prevent worst case scenarios of global warming uh, you know from happening. And look at the fate of uh, the sixth assessment report. 
particularly the second volume, which I've actually read all 1,200 pages of, you know, uh, you know, slog through, and which is, uh, you know, the really relevant volume and, 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 you know, the starkest and, you know, the most honest uh, of all the reports produced by the IPCC. And look at it today. Um, as uh, our American president races to, uh, you know, unleash gas, natural gas and in, in oil production is, uh, uh, you know, this crash program to, you know, to expand dramatically uh, the exported liquefied natural gas and, and, and so on. There's no hope of achieving any of those objectives. Also, should point out that there's a basic confusion between mitigation and adaptation. Now, we all know that the greater brunt of global warming, climate change, will fall on the poorest countries, least responsible, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, anthropogenic uh, emissions. But as the impacts, which, of course, you know, will be faster and more extreme than anticipated occur, take a country like the United States, you know, more wildfires and floods, coastal erosion, uh, you know, disasters, the focus will quickly turn to adaptation for the wealthier classes and regions of the country. It will become a form of class war, actually. <laughs> You know, in the United, you know, in the United States. But what that means is that is each of the wealthy countries focuses on its own uh, adaptations to extreme climate. There's simply going to be no finance for adaptation in in the rest of the world. Already, the fund that was set up in Paris to uh, uh, aid ad- adaptation strategies in 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 poor countries has has become a you know a, a bad joke. It, money's never been actually put up or distributed uh, on the scale. And finally, if I could add, mitigation sometimes can be used as an excuse to bypass or overlook the other factors involved in the impacts take fire in the western united states uh in california the governor every time we have a mega fire uh the governor gets up and said well california is taking the lead in in mitigation in dealing with global warming and global warming of course is the cause of the fires that's not true global warming interacts with un uh unregulated you know, land development. Uh, build most of the homes built in California in the last thirty years have been built in areas of high fire risk and so on. But the development industry is simply too powerful, uh, you know, to be put in the spotlight. So everything is uh, based on global warming, and everywhere in the world where you see extreme climate impacts, there's similarly a coupling with uh, other eco-political 
you know, economic, uh, you know, factors as, as, as well. Global warming just becomes a huge, uh, you know, excuse for not dealing with, with other things. That's, you know, land reform or restraining development in, uh, uh, you know, wild areas. If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, edited by Colin Barker, Gareth Dale, and Neil Davidson. This ambitious volume examines revolutionary situations during a non-revolutionary historical conjuncture, the neoliberal era. The last three decades have seen an increase in the number of political upheavals that challenge existing power structures, many of them taking the form of urban revolts. This book compellingly explores a series of such upheavals, from Eastern Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa to Latin America, and also engages in the theorization of revolution today. As Tithi Bhattacharya puts it, the book is not a wistful history about what could have been. Rather, it is a strategic assessment of near victories to prepare us for the fire next time. Find revolutionary rehearsals in the neoliberal age at haymarketbooks.org. I guess that kind of connects a couple of threads from our first theme into the question of ecological crisis, which is um, in terms of pandemic management, I've always been very curious about the slippage between something being predictable and being unavoidable. Um, and if we think about the lockdowns, the length of the lockdowns that we had, the economic crisis that ensued, it has always been presented to us. And I guess most importantly, the sheer death toll in America's knocking on the door of one million deaths, right? It's always been presented to us as a completely unavoidable scenario you know, because we're kind of pushed to think about the pandemic in isolation to every other measure, but also pushed to think about the health of a population or the social reproduction of a population as in isolation to or in opposition to productivity in these instances. And I'm kind of wondering how you think as, you know, if the prognosis for climate change, climate disaster is so, so bleak, I'm wondering if you think it is possible um, at this point to struggle against um, the trends that we're seeing. I hope that made sense. Well, if, you know, of course it is on many, many fronts uh, at, the same, uh, at the same time. But my particular focus or concern in my writing over the last three or four years it's been the crisis of internationalism on the American left in, in particular. Because, of course, the United States provides a counterexample to what's happened in, in Europe. On one hand, of course, the rise of the Trumpian uh, far right and the capture of the Republican Party by what increasingly you must characterize as neo-fascist forces. But at the same time, this this you know, huge change in consciousness of, of of young people and the emergence of a mass left, but a mass left with, in many ways, in terms of the Sanders campaign and, uh, you know, particularly, uh, embraces its own kind of version of America firstism, 
you know, with absolute minimum attention given to issues of foreign policy, uh, you know, disarmament, but above all of, of global inequality. And so one of the crucial questions in terms of future action and, and the fate of uh, solidarity is how do you increase uh, internationalism? How do you build it you know, more uh, aggressively uh, and, and you know, with the urgency that's, that's needed? I sometimes think that the only person with any kind of loud voice at all who stands up consistently for the unity of the human the human race and solidarity with the poor of the planet is the Argentine soccer fan who lives in a big house in Rome. Um, there's no similar voice on the left, I'm afraid. Just to follow up on that, if I may, um, the, the crisis of internationalism it seems to be related to a general disorientation, um, and we've seen this around uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, but more generally, perhaps, it appears as if, to some extent, uh, you know, capitalism is being, I, I don't want to overstate this, but there's a degree to which it's being decentered, or at least there's a degree to which, uh, you know, China obviously is rising, India is rising. And when we talk about climate change, uh, there's been... Uh, a lot of uh, self-exculpatory um, scolding of China and India for using a lot of coal. Um, what, of course, their their historic responsibility for climate change is, is uh, not very significant at all. But it's true to say that in the future, as the, the incentives are so t set up um, that any society that wants to develop and develop rapidly would embrace uh, coal-fired power stations and you know things like that. So that essentially um, the coordinates of internationalism, you know, how does how is it organized? It used to be uh, probably fairly straightforward. If you were an internationalist, your first focus in the West was on U.S. imperialism and its allies. Um, globally, that might shift. Um, and I wonder if there's just um, a bit of discombobulation about uh, the consequences of that and how to handle it. Um, given, you know, Trumpism possibly represented one of the early stages of American decline. Um, maybe you don't agree with that thesis. What do you think? Well, I mean, definitely American decline. If if you know the film, the story of the Manchurian candidate, well, Donald Trump was the Manchurian uh, uh, you know, candidate. Uh, I'm sure there was at times just sheer disbelief in in Beijing about the degree to which uh, he, uh, you know, was basically abolishing American geostrategic positions and, uh, you know, repudiating particularly, you know, the uh, Atlantic Alliance. So there's, you know, there's no question that American decline uh, is real. The big question that's hovered over the global economy is the stability of the Chinese growth path. Uh, in 2008, the miracle that happened was not the rescue plans in, in Brussels or, or Washington. Was this immense Chinese, effort, you know, uh, investment 
which uh, mitigated the uh, you know the global you know recession. China let us out of the immediate crisis of two thousand and eight. Can it do that again? Uh, China, of course, is in the midst of a huge internal adjustment uh, faced with this overwhelming overinvestment and overcapacity in things like uh, middle class, you know, real estate and, you know, useless fixed capital and in, in, in investments. But it's almost impossible to really address these questions about you know, relative decline in the future of the world economy without understanding better uh, the conditions in China. And I'm not sure anybody does that. Years ago, I uh, was invited to British Columbia, to Vancouver, <coughs> excuse me, to speak mainly about urban planning. But in the course of it, I somehow got invited to this super elite institution called the Vancouver Club. And I met some of the leading Canadian investors in China. These were Canadian Chinese, uh, you know, billionaires. And I took advantage of the opportunity to ask them these questions, you know, about how the Chinese financial system, you know, takes... Uh, negative balance sheets and turns them into assets, uh, you know, what will be the consequences of this huge over, uh, you know, building or overinvestment in non-productive sectors? And the response to me was quite fascinating. They said simply, we don't know. We're as worried about this as anybody else. We don't understand how the system works. So that's the kind of black box here that I think confounds in many ways attempts to project the short-term or medium-term future of the, uh, uh, you know, of the global economy. But one thing should be clear is that China remains the, the epitome of volume one of capital the largest industrial working class in the world. And the question is whether the kind of Orwellian apparatus of, of surveillance and social control that the regime has created will continue to diffuse and break up, uh, suppress protests from, uh, from below. <laughs> and a serious economic crisis in China, you know, would very much be, a, you know, a test of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think what you say about uh, China being, uh, certainly for uh, the uh, Western left, uh, hitherto a black box, um, there's been, uh, it's been very difficult to interpret. Um, and also this, I suppose, goes back to the um, historic problems that we on the left, let's say the non-Stalinist left, whatever that might mean now, um, have had difficulty in sort of defining uh, these regimes that characterize themselves as communists. What were the real internal dynamics. Um, one thing is, is fairly clear, um, you know, there is a project of global China, 
um, that it's replicating internationally um, its internal dynamics of, you know, I mean, rampant corruption, uh, local officials being bought off by manufacturing firms, construction firms, and so on, state-owned enterprises, then uh, building uh, coal-fired pa- uh, power plants all over the world. Um, and all of this sort of linked to uh, a plan, which, I mean, is very interesting. They they claim uh, that by, uh, you know, 2030, 2050, I can't remember which it is, uh, they will have achieved the material basis for the full transition to socialism. Um, you know, that the, the, uh, this is uh, being developed right now, and it's being developed through initially a, a stage of highly intensive uh, fossil development, coal-fired power stations, all the rest of it, and then the shift to uh, renewable energies, which they're also investing in intensively. Um, but of course, that uh, in such a way that they hope they will be able to maintain a monopoly over rare metals, uh, which are of course going to be very important. And you know, you know, these things being, being produced in a way that it's extremely toxic for the environment, exploitative of the labor force. So um, I wonder where that's. I mean, uh, I suppose none of us can really know, but I wonder where you think that might be heading, given that uh, the regime if we take it seriously, continues to hold at least formally to some idea that it's transitioning to socialism. Um, what do I, we think really transitioning to? Uh, I'm not convinced that it does hold to, to that idea, uh, even a rhetorical sense. I mean, it holds to vision of a more egalitarian China with less regional uh, inequalities. Uh, uh, an internal market, uh, mass demand driven, uh, you know, growth machine and, you know, and so on. But none of that is hardly socialist in, in and of itself. Uh, in that, you know, when we speak about socialism, we must always speak about the democratization of economic power and the direct participation of of, of workers and ordinary people in the management of their their lives. But no, I mean, China has done something quite incredible, which is that it is formulated and then enacted an absolutely vast plan to secure the the inputs and raw resources necessary for its economy. And in doing so, uh, upset regional geopolitics in fundamental ways. You know, for instance, the role of China in Latin America, where China has supplanted the United States, is the leading economic power in a number of countries, the influence it's gained uh, through its investments, which some people would call neo-imperial or neo-colonial in Africa and so on. But, of course, the jewel within the crown for China is the Belt and Road uh, initiative, the New Silk Road. And I've read a lot about this, and I remain remain very, uh, you know, very flustered in trying to understand it, because the whole idea of infrastructural uh, modernization and and uniting of of Eurasia you know, might be not only the largest public works project in 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 human history, 
but it also might be an enormous, uh, uh, you know, lever uh, for economic change in, you know, the greater part of the, you know, the Earth's landmass. On the other hand, it is subject to the same problems as China's overinvestment in fixed capital and uh, and in real estate. It just isn't clear what this means as, you know, whether it will be transformed into actual, you know, big leap forwards and in productivity and regional trade and, you know, and so on, or whether you're going to leave simply a lot of dead monuments in the desert. I think then that kind of leads to another question, um, which is to do with the different, if we kind of turn to the left um, and visions of finding our way out of this apocalypse. Um, In the 60s and 70s, it was imagined that if the left could just see state power, if the left could just get closer to the levers of power internationally, um, that it would be possible to build a different kind of world to what we have today. And in the ensuing years, what we witnessed was essentially the erection of, and I'm thinking in the 60s and 70s, also of fundamentally the kind of anti-colonial movements and that kind of articulation of the left. We saw the um, establishment of a number of new so-called independent states, um, but little, little essentially materialized in terms of protecting or, or preventing the course of direction towards neocolonials. Sorry. Um, all right, I can focus now. Um, and today it seems that we've got this very strange scenario in which we have vast majority of the global South being led by or with elites who are the same color or nationality as the people of those countries. And Whilst we were told that self-governance would bring in um, a new era, a new kind of global imaginary, much more of the same, if not worse, if we think about how neoliberalism has unfolded. And so today, I mean, it, it's it's very difficult not to look at the scenario that we're faced with in despair. Um, and the question then is, if the left can't look to the states that historically have been associated with the aim of achieving socialism within our lifetime and well. Um, and we are seeing nascent struggles, but much of that, especially in the West, is failing to um, achieve an internationalist outlook, which is fit for purpose. Um, then the question is, I guess, who, uh, in the words of Richard, not to steal your thunder, builds the ark? Um, and who... Where kind of do we go from here? What vision of left, um, what vision of socialism or what vision of emancipation would fit the moment, um, in your opinion, that we're in? Sorry, that was quite jumbled. <laughs> well, of course, as, uh, as socialists, we believe in the self-emancipation of, of workers and we believe that solutions and uh, fundamental concepts of, of of the future arise from the process of struggle itself. So where there is large mass participation 
and struggle where huge historic battles are being fought. You know, you find clear visions and paths toward toward the future. And where those battles don't exist, uh, you know, you of course don't have that. And if you look at the situation globally, I mean, the one great exception, of course, has been Latin America and the rise of, of populist uh, radical, uh, often officially uh, socialist movements. In the worst case, this has led to generation in a kind of, uh, to use the proper Latin American term, cadioism, as in the case of Nicaragua, and unfortunately, I believe, probably in Venezuela as well. But look at the durability of, of, of popular movements in Brazil and Ecuador, and uh, especially in, 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 you know, in Bolivia. So in a way, platforms for envisioning emancipation, which have been built by popular struggle, still exist to Latin America to a degree that's uh, not true elsewhere. But the key point is struggle itself. Uh, the organization of conflict, which allows the participation and self-transformation of people. Now, my particular bet war right now is the, the inactivity of the, the American left. The Sanders campaign was built on the premise that you could be inside and outside of the political, the electoral system at the same time, okay? That struggles on the outside, like Black Lives Matter or union organizing campaigns, supported the election of progressives and progressives in office, supported, you know, increased participation uh, in those movements. And, of course, is an example of... Uh, what I fear is one of the darker laws of history, which is Robert, you know, Michel's iron law of uh, uh, oligarchy. Michel's was a social democrat who wrote this uh, scathing critique of the impact of office holding and uh, uh, electoralism on the German Social Democratic Party. But anyway, I mean, that is the case today. Uh, Alexandra and Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren continue to come out with that, you know, outstanding ideas. But every email I get, and I get dozens of emails because, you know, contributed to various campaigns. They're all about contributing to this campaign or that campaign. Never have I received a call to go out into the streets or build toward a uh, uh, a national uh, demonstration. I mean, and I see that very intimately in terms of my own family here because I have two 18-year-old children, and both of them were uh, totally galvanized by Black Lives Matter protests. Like their mother, they identify as Mexican. And this was, you know, the light of their life for a long season. But now, you know, they're adrift as so many of their, their friends are, because what do they do? Who's calling on them to act? Who's showing them the road to, uh, you know, deeper 
political involvement. The answer is, is, is no one. And there's no greater sin that can be committed on the left than allowing the demobilization of an active base. Uh, and in this country, in particular, it's, it's all important to take advantage of the fact that so much of the protest was not coming from middle-class uh, white students. It was coming out of coalitions of black, Latino, Asian youth. It was coming out of the you know, the high schools, but to build a movement that actually expresses its social base means you have to deal with questions. How do you give young people, uh, poor young people, working class young people, ways to stay politically involved while at the same time, you know, they're struggling, uh, you know, turn, uh, you know, turn a living. This is a, a test that so many left organizations and traditions, uh, you know, have failed. So we end up with this bizarre situation in the United States where the streets are live and the streets are full of protests, but it's totally owned by the far right, by the neo-fascists. And the Republicans have brilliantly shown how you use street protests and various kinds of, uh, you know, movements, uh, you know, to increase your voice and, you know, you know, build uh, political power, which they have done on a molecular level from local to state government in a way that Democrats, uh, you know, have, have totally failed, you know, failed to do. So in this country, it's not so much the absence of a proto-socialist consciousness or, you know, uh, radicalism in the, in the grassroots. It's a huge organizational failure, a catastrophic failure, which uh, is in very old man can find to find in his home I am, you know find totally confusing uh, but I guess I should admit that I remain in some sense a, a Leninist and I can't imagine how you can sustain and lead struggles forward without some kind of organization of organizers okay it's capable of doing the uh, uh, the two things that in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels said were the responsibilities of communists, one to represent in struggles of the local and the national, the interests of the international working class as a whole, and in struggles of the immediate to represent the, uh, the interests of the future. Uh, and so... This is a little different situation, I think, from what prevails in, you know, in in Western uh, in Western Europe. As far as neo-colonialism, and particularly the you know the African cases, I think the the tragic link here has been in South Africa, which possessed you know a powerful uh, far left. Although under different guises, not just I'm not talking just about the South African Communist Party, but about the left wing of uh, 
the ANC and African its youth and so on. And again, the example of of uh, the movement in power has been to disorganize the movement itself. But it was in South Africa that you would have expected the major pool of oppositional and liberatory uh, thought to emerge and, you know, fertilize and sustain similar, uh, you know, movements or politics across the the rest of Africa. Instead, what you have is the most unequal society on the face of the earth. I may, I want to uh, follow up on that um, because one of the things that um, I found, um, you know, particularly exciting about your work is uh, its critical approach to Marxism, uh, even, you know, working very much within the terrain of Marxism, uh, very much committed to Marxism, but critically and openly. Um, And in your book, uh, well, in Planet of Slums, I noticed that you raised the, um, uh, an important strategic question for Marxism uh, in that the, you know, we've been very bad at theorizing, uh, you know, the, the emerging informal uh, proletariat um, and, uh, how to work within and organize um, uh, uh, th- those kinds of communities. And then in Old Gods, New Masters, um, you refresh Marxism by, well, a number of strategies. One of them, I, I noticed there's a, a, a long chapter dealing with Kropotkin, um, not usually bothered on the Marxist left, but I think a really exciting and fascinating thing, and you deal with his ecological prescience. But I just wonder if you could talk a bit about your approach to Marxism, where you see the limits, and to that extent also where you see the fut- uh, the sort of where it would be most fruitful to develop Marxism. Well, I mean, (laughs) uh, it's very hard for even me to characterize, uh, you know, my thought or or my politics, because I'm essentially I'm a a pilgrim, you know, a permanent student. Uh, And I learned an awful lot from uh, other traditions above all from anarcho-communism and the experience of the of the workers movement in in spain and other countries but the real question ultimately i think comes comes down to this that marxists have failed to properly relativize or contextualize Marxist thought. It remains absolutely true, as the economist admitted some years ago, uh, the Marx remains revelatory in terms of the future and the nature of, of, of capitalism. Uh, that there are pages in Capital and the Grundisse, uh, you know, which are fully contemporary with Silicon Valley and uh, digital capitalism today, you know, foresee it that are absolutely relevant to debates about automation and so on. But we m- mustn't forget the period in which Marx lived was the, one of the great exceptions in a thousand years of European history in terms of being a basically Pacific period. Okay, when war, large-scale warfare, did not seem necessary to the reproduction of 
of, of power uh, and, and, and capital, uh, a period in which trends like the secularization of, of belief amongst workers and ordinary people seem to be irreversible. Uh, not anticipating the, you know, resurgence of religion, particularly of Catholicism in Mediterranean and Central Europe and so on. And also that there are these um, curious blind spots in Marx's work. He never wrote a word about cities, for example. Engels did, of course, quite brilliantly, but not Marx, nor did he have a great interest in, in geography, which was the forte of, of uh, great anarchist scientists like Kropotkin and Ilyse, you know, uh, 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 Ray Clue. So Marx, in a sense, needs to be reinvented. I was very much inspired in writing this strange little book, uh, Old God's New Enigmas, by uh, Daniel Ben Said's. Uh, book on Marx, his kind of vision of a non uh, nonlinear and neo-catastrophic Marx for uh, you know our 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 time, but the problem is that so much of Marxology is devoted to the same endlessly esoteric questions of the transformation problem, or you know uh, Hegel and capital, and you know value theory, and so on. Rather than explain some of the more exciting and undeveloped parts of Marx, and my major interest, of course, was in the cycle of work on the Revolution of 1848, which, as Robin Blackburn pointed out many, many years ago, uh, in a kind of heretical statement that Marx's greatest originality lay in politics, in the analysis of politics, not in economics. And uh, the writings of 1848 and, you know, the immediate aftermath, I think, are, uh, you know, still a motherload uh, of, of ideas because they are the most sustained example of the analysis of a conjuncture of, of a particular historical moment and its structural determinants uh, to be found really uh, at least in the 19th century canon of socialism. And I think very much what we need now uh, is more focus on conjunction. Now, <laughs> I mean, this may seem a little off the wall, but, you know, apocalypse in the Abrahamic religions is the moment at which the real history of the world is revealed. You know, the history from the standpoint of the oppressed and, you know, in the dam. And in a sense, we live in a similar apocalyptic motion uh, moment. But are we really capable of, you know, measuring up to the demands of the kind of revision of, 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 of history that's required, the kind of new understanding that it, uh, you know, forces upon us? And, uh, Unfortunately, I don't think you can say that there's a Marxist renaissance going on right now. You know, there simply, you know, there simply isn't. And that has to be addressed, not at the level of the 
you know, new discoveries in in European, uh, you know, philosophy or or debates about you know traditional subjects, but it has to take place through this kind of conjunctural analysis, precisely what your project is about. Okay, um, we have a couple of questions from the audience. I don't know if Annie has something she wants to uh, ask as well, um, but we have a couple of questions from the audiences. So uh, for, uh, the first question here is, um, it says, Mike, there's much left theorizing around conspiracy theories, unhelpful term, thrown up by these apocalyptic times. You've diagnosed capitalist apocalypse culture for decades. Do you think this is uh, ahistorical or isn't, is there indeed more and or more dangerous conspiracism around today than in previous crises? And if so, why? And thank you for all your work. Well, I mean, my answer is in a way limited by the fact that I'm an American and conspiracy theory is a fundamental constituent of American, uh, you know, political history. I mean, my methodology has always been to disregard uh, conspiracies, at least up until uh, I saw the movie uh, Illustrious Corpses by uh francesco rossi i don't even remember the film but there's this vast conspiracy involving the communist party as well as the christian democrats and assassination of judges and my immediate reaction to that was, this is you know a director i much admire this is totally off, off off the rails politics can't work that way and then of course we find out that's exactly how italian politics uh cold war politics uh, 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 works. So you can't simply read conspiracy uh, out of out of history. Uh, but I don't think that conspiracy theories uh, I, I think that when we deal with conspiracy theories uh, uh, today, we have to deal with the fact that uh, Education has failed in the most fundamental ways in front of the onslaughts of the right wing uh, uh, media and of the social media uh, itself. I mean, I encountered, you know, regularly the most fantastic claims and so on uh, from people, including friends of mine, and the magnification of insignificant details into. Um, you know, what is supposed to be, you know, a major alarming phenomena. The best example of which is identity politics. Uh, Euron Terborn, a couple of years ago in the New Life Review, pointed out that there's no contradiction at all between the politics of economic inequality and identity politics. Identity politics is about equality. Okay, It's about equal rights. Uh you know, for all uh, all people, but that gets conflated not just by you know the right wing, which has built an entire industry uh, around this, but by many many people on the left who, because they've encountered personal instant instances of people who are kind of pimping you know identity for some advantage in academia or this or that, uh, 
you know, buy into this idea. And I think it's been a real failure uh, on on the left to not more aggressively confront that and say issues of gender equality, of sexual identity, you know, and so on, are fundamental human human rights, you know, and they're not part of, you know, they're, they're not an alternative or an opposition to focus on economic inequality, you know, or 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 social class. And uh, I mean, it, it's frightening the extent to which even progressive opinion <clears throat> ends up having to contour itself to you know, problematics generated by the far right or by, uh, you know, mainstream liberalism. Um, just before, we do have a, a few more questions coming in from the audience, but I'm particularly kind of struck by your um, your last comments, um, particularly in relation to identity politics. And I guess, um, so earlier on, I didn't really get a chance because I had quite loud and shrill shrieking in my background, so I couldn't unmute. <laughs> earlier on, you were kind of um, talking about the... Um, The collapse in internationalism. All right, I'm sort of trying to work out how to frame it as I go along. And what was really striking to me is that we seem to talk a lot on the left about the death of internationalism, seem to talk about the crisis of internationalism, but the constituencies which we're hoping to appeal to don't seem to think about the world in the same terms that we are. Um, in particular, when it comes to identity, whether that's the kind of construction of the white working class concept in the, in the British context, whether that's like um, narratives of Black Lives Matter, which kind of serve to efface um, internal class distinction between a kind of newly class stratified Black category in the 21st century. And so I'm kind of um, interested to see how, well, what you think, you know, we kind of think about identity politics as the other side of the coin to economic issues. We talk about identity or we talk about economic issues. And I've kind of argued elsewhere that there's no such thing as a kind of anti-racist demand or gendered demand, which is not also a class demand itself, whether it's a bourgeois demand or a working class demand would remain to be seen. Um, but I was wondering what your kind of thoughts would be on um, that tension between a left which is still thinking in international terms and a politics which is increasingly confined within the nation's borders as represented by questions of identity, which then produce kind of monolithic categories of identity. I don't know if that makes any sense. but Well, of course it makes sense, but it also alerts us to the fact that uh, in some ways we trapped ourselves in categories that are in reality you know, artificial. For example, if you ask the question, you know, what is the material basis for internationalism? Because in the past, internationalism has been so associated with mass immigration or with the, you know, mobility of workers across boundaries and so on. And if you look in the United States and you ask this question, the material basis for internationalism has never been greater because of the proportion of immigrants and the fact that so many uh, American urban you know, communities, in a sense, reproduce themselves into 
two places, two spaces, you know, both here, but, you know, uh, in the villages or regions that they came from and that they returned to and go back and forth, uh, you know, between. I mean, living in a, a Mexican family uh, right on the border is, you know, should be tremendous opportunities here for linkages and cross-fertilization between Latino politics in the Southwest and, and, and Mexican politics. Likewise, if you look at the South Asian diaspora, one of, I think, the more striking things about the American New Life today, the large number of, of you know, really brilliant South Asian kids who, uh, you know, aren't, you know, involved in left media and writing, you know, and so on. Uh, again, you know, strong links that should exist, but, you know, but, but don't exist. And I think, of course, the, you know, the same thing in, uh, you know, much of Western, you know, much of Western Europe. So the question is not so much that identity politics is been responsible for a kind of involution of uh, political thinking and in solidarities is that the material linkages between you know such large parts of the population you know they you know in their homelands hasn't been more developed as an axis of you know active solidarity and uh, 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 protest. Part of the reason, unfortunately, is because often in the home countries or sending countries, there's no really developed or equivalent, you know, left or, you know, a radical movement. Though, of course, there are also many, you know, important uh, exceptions to that. But I just raise this as a question uh, that needs to be addressed in perhaps a more, you know, materialistic way than we have in the past. But again, identity politics, we've allowed ourselves to be painted into uh, a corner over this when we should be aggressively fighting and, you know, disputing the categories and, you know, overthrowing the uh, mythology. As always, the kind of particularly insidious role is played by the kind of moderate or realistic uh, liberals and progressives, you know, who say, well, you know, the right might be wrong about how they phrase the problem, but there's a real problem here. And our answer, I think, should be bullshit. Okay. <laughs> this is not the problem. Uh I want to uh, bring in the other questions from the audience. Uh, we've got uh, a few minutes, like we've got just under 10 minutes left of wrap up here. So um, let me see. What have we got? We've got uh, a question from Richard Hames says, can Mike say more about what he thinks about core slash semi-periphery slash periphery models of capitalism? Um, and then there's another question, which is, are there any ideas about how to prepare now for post-apocalyptic anarcho-communism, if the planet passes so many tipping points, what are the means of restoration and rehabilitation of ecosystems? Two very qu different questions. Uh, do you have any thoughts on either of those, Mike? Yes, I mean, to uh, to 
address the uh, uh, remind me what the first question was. Can you? Oh, Richard, you're muted. Um, right. Um, can can Mike say more about what he thinks about core slash semi periphery slash periphery models of capitalism? Well, I mean, gods of chaos rule the planet. Um, I think most listeners will remember something called the Knicks. Uh, you know, the new industrial countries, Brazil, uh, South Africa, you know, you know, India. Uh, and this was generalizations, abstractions developed at the height of the commodity boom when China's enormous demand for, you know, raw materials and agricultural commodities uh, had created boom in, you know, a number of, of, of countries. But you look at the situation today and uh, countries like Brazil and South Africa that seem to be flexing their industrial muscles, you know, are you know, now dealing with, you know, their own rust belts and precipitous declines in manufacturing and in, in uh, industrial employment. So th there's a fluidity here that rejects any return to, you know, simple dichotomies or, or you know, topologies of, 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 of the past. Uh, and it's also, of course, in question, you know, where is the center now? What is the, you know, metropolis? You know, obviously the city of London and, you know, Wall Street still remains central, as does, you know, the Pentagon in, in Washington. But in very disputed ways and... You know, seeing the abrupt changes that have occurred over the last, you know, decade, uh, I think it would be, you know, dangerous, you know, to venture some new typology that characterizes the interrelationships of the major sectors of the world economy. As far as anarcho-survivalism goes, uh, look, it's not going to be a question of, you know, in in the richer countries of, you know, uh, one of these post-apocalyptic fantasies, you know, where you're left with kind of hunter-gatherer communities or, you know, you're left with people trying to rebuild civilization from the ruins. The rich will survive. They'll even survive a world in which uh, a runaway greenhouse warming uh, is occurring. The more likely scenario is the sacrifice the triage of humanity as I insisted throughout this interview uh, of you know, the several billion you know poorest people on the planet beginning with subsistence farmers beginning with the agricultural sector no group is in more uh, direct danger than subsistence farmers in Asia and uh, Africa uh, you know, for example, from the combination of climate change and global economic forces. So I'm not really interested in survivalist tendencies. Uh, I'm interested on how we can fight, put fighting for humanity as a whole back on the socialist agenda. Because, you know, of course, recall, you know, in, in you know, the words of Marx that the liberation of the 
that the working class has to be the liberation of all oppressed uh, humanity. And these may seem like very extremely old-fashioned Victorian you know, slogans, but they remain more important than ever. Well, there, I think, uh, would be an excellent place to wrap it up. Uh, Annie, do you have anything you want to chip in? Uh, no, I was actually trying to unmute and I accidentally clicked the chat button. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap up and, um, a really important note. Um, before we head off, we've got about three minutes left. I guess um, the final thing to say is that we do hope that you have enjoyed today's discussion and that you join us in future for other discussions. You can find more of our discussions um, on the channel. And also do subscribe to Salvage. Um, the next issue will be with you imminently. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.